Thank you for being with us. Tonight is a Rebellion Resistance rebroadcast of a previous Our Common Ground episode with Reverend Dr. Ruby Sales. Global White Supremacy, Baltimore to Palestine. Listen, learn, liberate. And don't forget to trust your struggle. We will return live next Saturday. I'll be listening for you. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming truth, truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening and welcome to this wonderful fall, crisp evening at Our Common Ground. I know for those of you, the air is fresh and even crispier. Thank you for being with us here on Our Common Ground. I am joined tonight again with our co-host and featured commentator, Dr. Ruby Nell Sales, and she is going to be joining us in just a few. want to tell you that if you are listening on your phone or smart device, that you can join our chat room at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG to join our listeners who listen during this broadcast and also talk with each other about the truth that we filter through these airwaves. Thank you so much, and I do want to um, uh, very much thank all of you out there in social media who are passing on our information, our announcements about our programs, who have liked us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Uh, About, I guess about a month ago, we passed the 500 March mark on Twitter at Janice OCG, and I think that's a good thing. And you can also join us at Truth TWN Talk for TruthWorks Network. And um, if you want to email us and tell us how we are doing, you can do so at OCGinfo at OurCommonGround.com. Before we begin tonight and bring um, my co-host on, um, who has been joining us in this series that we've been calling Rebellion and Resistance, Learning, Listening, and Liberating in this bold, brave, and black broadcast. I do want to mention the 776, and it might still be growing, list of victims and their families uh, who journeyed to Mecca for Hajj, and such a tragedy um, um, in 
that uh, incident yeah. where of the stampede. Ruby, you with me? Yes, I'm with you. Good evening. How are you? Oh, good evening. I'm doing okay. I'm always ready to ride with you. Um, tonight on Our Common Ground, and we thank you again for being with us, we're discussing in this series of re- resistance and rebellion uh, white supremacy as a system of power which is fundamentally undergird and the foundation of economic, political, and cultural imperialism. And our discussion tonight is going to focus on examining the parallels of the struggle to dismantle that system, to resist it, with the struggle of other victims of white supremacy across the globe. Let me tell you, and and Ruby, you can jump right in here. Okay. Who we have uh, on uh, as our guest tonight. Joining us in this first page is a representative of the Dream Defenders uh, to discuss worldwide white supremacy and law enforcement, police departments, and legal detention and arrest of black adults and children. He is the co-founder of the Dream Defenders, Ahmad Abuznadi. Oh, I knew I was going to mess that up. I knew I was going to mess it up. I'm going to start all over. Ahmad Abuznaid. He is the co-founder of the Dream Defenders and currently serving as its chief operating officer while leading in legal policy matters. Uh, the Dream Defenders, if you do not know, and you should know, are an uprising from communities and struggle committed to shifting the culture through transformational organization. You may remember them as they grew uh, right after the murder of uh, Trayvon Martin. And for many, many days they occupied uh, the um, state house and ta- at Tallahassee, Florida, um, demanding and challenging transformation and change in the idea of how courts are interpreting stand-your-ground laws and how the disparate impact of those laws affect African-American communities especially. Ahmad was born in East Jerusalem, Palestine. It was there growing up while living under occupation that he first developed his interest in social justice. He returned to the U.S. for high school and attended Florida State University, where he received his bachelor's in international affairs. And we're just really pleased to have him with us. Most recently, he led the Dream Defenders delegation of a black, brown U.S. activist to Palestine. And one of the things that we're going to be talking with him, Ruby, about is the idea that the militarization of police departments all over the country are creating an environment where police are really rogues and they have control um, beyond the law. And specifically, we want to talk to him about a law that's being uh, uh, proposed in 
uh, Israel having to do with children and rock throwing, that children under this law would be victimized by both arrest and police brutality, and we're going to be talking with him. In our second hour with uh, my co-host, Dr. Um, Dr. Sales, we're going to be talking with Shahar Vardi. She is a citizen of Israel, and she is a Jerusalem-based activist uh, back in 2008. She publicly refused her military service and was imprisoned um, there. And since then, she's been active with the Israeli, Israeli anti-militarist group such as New Profile and works as an Israel coordinator for the American French Service Committee based in Jerusalem. And we are just really pleased to have both of these people with us. Ruby, let's talk a little bit about yes. the notion of why the struggle in of, for a Palestinian nation and the people of Palestine is important. The other thing that I think the audience would really be interested especially in is the history that the struggle of black people have um, and how it is engaged in the history of the of the struggle for for freedom for Palestinians um, and it all began uh, back in um, I mean so so very long ago back in the 60s with discussions that went on and the support of SNCC while you were a member of SNCC. Yes. And, and give, us a, give us some background on that. Well, first of all, I want to just say that when you think about SNCC's global uh, critique, its critique of, of U.S. imperialism around the world, you have to put it within the context of the Bandung Conference that happened in 1955, where Africans and Asian leaders came together who had shaken the chains of colonialism, European and American colonialism, to build a unified voice against U.S. imperialism. And SNCC was greatly, although we were too young to be a part of that conference in the 19, I think it was 1954 or 1955, we were greatly influenced by the notion of a Pan-African movement to speak, to address the question of U.S. imperialism, not only in Africa, but in China and around the world to look at the consequences of U.S. imperialism. So SNCC in 1967 became very involved in offering a critique against Zionism and the Israeli state and the, the, the war against the Palestinian people and the theft of their homeland. And SNCC, Jim Foreman, was a primary mover in that struggle. So was Stokely Carmichael, and so was the SNCC woman named Ethel Minor. And we wrote, and SNCC wrote a position paper, 
For James Foreman warned everyone that this would not be a short war, that it would be a very long and protracted war, which we all needed to prepare ourselves to stand against. He was very prophetic. He wrote that in 1967, and the war against the Palestinian people continues today. Mm-hmm. The other issue about this whole also very much involved in the pro-Palestinian position was June Jordan, the poet, who wrote this incredible poem where she brought within the black liberation struggle the Palestinian struggle. So black activists, black activists who were part of the black liberation struggle began to make these connections as early as the 1960s. And and in making these connections, SNCC suffered tremendously. Mm -hmm. Our donations fell off from the Jewish community. We were vilified by people who were in bed with with the labor movement in this country. A. Philip Randolph came down very hard on SNCC. Uh, Unfortunately, Dr. King supported Israel. But this conversation within the black community where we identify strongly with the war against the Palestinian people within the context of our own struggle in this country is not new. And I think that it's important for us to, as we have this conversation tonight, to understand that we are critiquing Zionism, not we do not want to have that conversation denigrate into attacks on the people, but rather on systems. And that... SNCC found itself really vilified and isolated for its position on Palestine. And we were called everything from being anti-Semites to being terrorists. And basically the propaganda that was unleashed against SNCC was really fermented by a Jewish, some Jewish responses to our pro-Palestinian position. Mm-hmm. I, I clearly remember in my study of this issue um, the positions of, uh, at the time, uh, Floyd McKissick and Lincoln Lynch were two leaders of the Congress of Racial Equality. People might recognize that as core. And uh, they made all kinds of excuses as to why they would not support um, uh, Foreman and SNCC's position and the Palestinian cause. And one of the ways in which the le- that leadership at the time and many, of, many members of the black leadership in, across this country felt that it would be so disruptive uh, to their organizations uh, that it would inflame internal divisions uh, and bring public scrutiny to organizations that were already vulnerable to that. Um, it was clear to me in, in, in trying to understand this because I was studying this at the same time that it was happening. And there were many members across the African-American 
we're going to continue this discussion. We hope that you will stay with us. Shahar Vardi is a Jerusalem-based activist, and we'll tell you more about her on the other side of this break. This is Our Common Ground. Our number is, oh, what's our number? 347-838-98. Let me ask you a couple of questions. What happened when Israel landed on Palestine? Could you please give us a little bit of that history and what are the consequences of that uh, that incident today? What, what are the consequences? Absolutely. Thank you. I think that's a very good question. Um, simply put, um, Israel, in order to create a uh, Jewish majority of population, not only began bringing in uh, Jewish immigrants from Europe and uh, South America and, and the United States by the boatload, but simultaneously they were ethnically cleansing the land of its Palestinian population. We know that there is no way a population goes from 95% Arab to 20% Arab via a mistake. There were calculated plans to raise villages to erase the name, to build Jewish towns on top of cemeteries, to build Jewish towns on top of Arab towns, to erase the culture, the very history of the land and the Palestinian people's ties to the land was being threatened, encroached upon, and demolished by the Israeli occupation and the establishment of And what years are you talking state. about? Could you give us a little bit of a chronology so we can Absolutely. have a sense of the timeline? Sure, absolutely. So the state of Israel was founded in 1948, but the World Zionist Congress and the Zionist movement uh, found found itself beginning in the late 1800s. Um, and we started to see some mo- some movement as their political ties and their political wealth um, continued to grow. And in 1917, there was a declaration issu- uh, issued by a, a person named Lord Balfour, who worked on behalf of the British government. You see, after World War One, the um, the world powers, the imperial powers, took administrative control over several lands in Africa and the Middle East in order to supposedly um, hold down the fort until the native population was ready to secure its liberation. But we know from past history and we know from the ways of empire that that was never a part of the plan. And so while they told Palestinians we would have our liberation, they simultaneously promised away our land to the Zionists. And the Zionists, um, you know, some of the more familiar names are the Rothschilds. So the Rothschilds, yes. one of the wealthiest Zionist families in the world, begun actually funding some of the first settlements um, in Palestine. When you say Zionists, please talk a little bit of, uh, about what you mean when you say that. Great. That's actually another great point. We always make the point, as as Dr. Sales, as Sister Sales said earlier, to distinguish between the Jewish people and Zionism. Zionism is a political ideology. Um, it is different and and wholly uh, opposite of Judaism. Judaism Judaism is a worship of God. It is a community of faith, whereas Zionism is a capitalistic imperialistic political ideology, which is not so different from that of Manifest Destiny and what we saw in the raping and pillaging of natives here and from the use of of ideologies 
in the enslavement and the massacres and the genocide of African Americans. People have frequently utilized ideologies where they paint themselves as uh, beholden to God and where they paint themselves as people of faith, and they then use those ideologies um, to wreak havoc on um, less uh, powerful populations. And so Zionism was basically an ideology that allowed um, those who wanted a Jewish state um, to figure out how to create such. And they looked at South America, and they looked at nations in Africa, and they settled very strategically on the land of Palestine. And the religious um, indoctrination, which Dr. Stale spoke about earlier, and the conflation with the Hebrews of the Bible also seeks to allow Zionism to infiltrate, um, you know, our communities. Let me ask you something. In thinking about Zionism and doing the work that you're doing in this country around militarization um, and other issues, state-sanctioned murders and other issues, do you see a correlation between Zionism and white nationalism? And if so, could you tell us what those connections are? Absolutely. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is a simple disregard for those that do not belong to the white race, those who do not have Aryan blood um, in the sense that they require it, uh, our bodies are disposable. And you see that not only with um, the different crimes that we've seen and tragedies such as Tray Trayvon Martin and uh, Martin Lee Anderson and Jordan Davis, but you see it in the criminalization of their bodies after they have been killed. So we yes. have to sit there and talk for days on end and weeks on end about Trayvon Martin and marijuana or Jordan Davis and hip-hop music or Eric Garner and selling loose cigarettes. You know, so, so not only is it, is it a, a continued dehumanization of their body, but post-mortem it is the exact same. It has to continue. And so there's a, yes. a lack of appreciation for the very humanity in, in our bodies and in our culture. And how does that play itself out in terms of the criminalization of Palestinians? Well, what, are some of, what are some of the, the stereotypes and criminalized um, descriptions, propaganda that has been uh, mm -hmm. promoted around the world about Palestinians that might be similar to what has been said about African Americans? Absolutely. So first and foremost, there are the same portrayers of the prison industrial complex operating in the United States and operating in Palestine, such as G4S and YSI. These institutions are proud to profit off of the criminalization of our bodies and our entire peoples. The Palestinian population has been, uh, has been written about, spoken about in media, and dictated in film as one of a terrorist population that is bloodthirsty yes. and thirsty and simply hates the sight of a Jewish or white body, similarly to the way that black bodies were criminalized because they had an, um, an, an, a fascination with uh, black bodies and they had a fear, an intense fear of the black body, and so they made sure to criminalize every aspect of of black culture and so even the origin of the police in our communities goes back to those as you were saying on Friday night those that were initially um, tasked with 
capturing slaves who had run away. And so then they came out with these stereotypes of African Americans who were bloodthirsty and they would rape your women and they would steal your goods because they had such a level of dehumanization that they put a character to it. And that character, uh, you know, unfortunately for our peoples, it spread like wildfire. And it's very powerful when you indoctrinate populations like that. I think it's important for you to elucidate a little bit more on the criminalization of Palestinian peoples because I think it is because of that criminalization as it is in America that people can watch the wholesale murder and genocide of Palestinian people without any remorse or without any feeling that Palestinians are human. And so what? let's talk a little bit about how that has played itself out in terms of how that has provided cover for the Israelis to murder, contain, invade Palestinians without mm-hmm. any moral accountability around the world or with very yes. few, little moral accountability. Mm-hmm. So, so I'll start off by saying that Um, 80% of the males in my family have spent time in an Israeli prison. Um, That is uh, everyone from my father to my uncles and cousins. Um, Let's let's put put, um, this example for a fact that in the United States of America, if someone enters your home and attempts to steal your dog, you are legally um, able to blow that person's head off. You can do anything you want to protect your dog, your wallet, your automobile. But here you have an entire population of Palestinians whose homes are being demolished, and if you resist that demolition, you are arrested. If you throw a rock um, and you're a young boy and you throw a rock at a tank, you could possibly face 20 years. If you are arrested as a Palestinian, you go to a military court. You don't even have the ability to see an attorney because you are going to a military court where they can have you in administrative detention with six months minimum without even telling you your charges. And the conviction rate in a case where a Palestinian goes to a military court is 99%. So not only do they criminalize um, the nonviolent protests, uh, the people that are marching uh, against the wall, the apartheid wall, people that are marching against settlements, they criminalize your violent resistance, your nonviolent resistance. They criminalize your existence. And so we as Palestinians have begun to say that our existence is actually resistance. And so the criminalization um, has spanned generations. I think, you know, going on 70-plus years now, every generation and every family will have felt and touched Israeli prisons. Um, and it's by structure that they do this because they beat you down and they beat down the will of the people. But I don't think they realized that there was something in the will of the people of oppressed communities that uh, actually grew um, due to its rage. That righteous rage that fuels us um, does, not, does not go away, and it will not allow us to be silent. So um, even though those examples are horrifying and we see kids as young as six years old getting locked up in Israeli prisons, we've seen babies being burnt to death. We've seen uh, people being beaten on camera to a pulp. Even with all of this, we will not stop resisting, and we will not give up, and we will continue to link up with the press communities across the globe. I, I, I just want to um, add jump that in I, here for, I, yes. for for a minute. Um, Ahmad has pointed out with such richness and clarity 
about what the challenge is before the Palestinian people, and he has done it from a personal experience. And my question, Ahmad, um, or I guess what I'm asking you to do is, is, is to delve into a discussion relative to your observations, because what you've described is exactly what has happened to, uh, to black people uh, mm-hmm. across this country uh, over the last 20 years. And you're saying that you have seen 80% of the males in your family who have been in some way incarcerated in prisons in, in Israel, in Palestine. But, le- but let me ask you for your observations about how clear you think black people in America, and you've been up there in Tallahassee. I, um, I was uh, the first undergraduate black student at Florida State University, so I know that's Klan country up there. Wow. Uh, wow. <laughs> so um, I want to I wanna ask you to um, reflect on what you believe, both activists and not activists in the African-American community, and why, even with parallel experience, our community doesn't seem to understand the same kind of imperialist oppression in the way that you understand it uh, as a youth and as a um, young adult. Um, Palestinian native. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, thank you for trailblazing um, that pathway at Florida State. I attended Florida State as well, and so needless to say, as a Palestinian American, um, you know, I appreciate you and your sacrifice. The the campus was clearly um, a more palatable climate, um, you know, in in the years I attended due to um, the sacrifice of you and others. So first of all, thank you very much. Um, I think, you know what, you have to meet people where they're at. And the reality is black Americans have been um, unfortunately made to dwell in the belly of the beast for the last 400-some-odd years. And um, just like you are disconnected to Palestine when you are put through such a traumatic, continual um, uh, depletion of your people and your culture, um, just like you can't connect to Palestine as easily, it's also just as difficult to connect to the motherland and to the things happening in Africa and other other places in the world. You see, uh, part of empire is telling us that we need to be individualistic and we need to worry yes. about our own and mm-hmm. we can only worry about our own. In fact, we can only discuss one issue at a time. You see people um, who get lost in these discussions who say, you know, uh, what are you all talking about those Palestinians for when we're getting killed over here? Yes, people are getting killed in here, absolutely. People are getting killed over there, and the further and further we continue to divide ourselves, the happier empire will be. And so I think that um, there always have been those in the black liberation movement and the black liberation struggle, you know, that have gotten it. Um, I, you know, I, it was natural to me because I looked up to people like Stokely Carmichael and Malcolm X and Angela Davis and Ruby Sales. You know, I, I haven't told Dr. Sales this, but, you know, I'm reading the Stokely Carmichael um, 
uh, biography written by Pernell Joseph, and, and, you know, her sacrifices is explained in there. And she's, you know, um, been an immense, um, you know, courageous fighter for all of us. So I will say that, um, yes, there are reasons, I think tangible reasons, why many black Americans don't um, get to see what's outside of this world. Um, we need more delegations. We need uh, more cross-cultural experiences. I think that um, even for the delegation we took to Palestine, many of the folks were very educated on Palestine. Mark Lamont Hill was very educated on Palestine. Patrice Cullors had, had been fighting for Palestine for 10 years. But when you see it, when you go through that checkpoint and you see the turnstile that should be um, something more fit for perhaps some type of livestock, is something used to channel people and mothers and children through. When you see soldiers strip-searching young children, um, when you see uh, a, a completely militarized society with settlements on the hilltop, it completely changes your perspective. So I will say that we need mm -hmm. to continue to do more to, to allow our, our black brothers and sisters to understand. Um, Palestinians I? also need to do more. Ruby, Can before you get in, in, see, Ruby, you're going to have to. <laughs> Ruby, just well, let me, I, I, let I me really follow want to up add here. something to it because I, I think it's very important to deal with the whole notion of one of the tools of empire oppression is fragmentation, is yep. to di disconnect us from our common interests. And for but, me, the liberation struggle is not only what African Americans are not wanting to con how the question is are Palestinians connecting their struggles with the struggle of African American mm -hmm. people yep. and, and, and oppressed people around the world. You see, mm -hmm. I think that that's a question that's on the table for all yep. people who are under the weight yep. of imperialism and, and the psychological uh, warfare and propaganda uh, and the tools of oppression that are perpetrated not only mm -hmm. domestically but around the world. Mm -hmm. I, I, I absolutely agree, and we have to figure out. You see, that's why it's important for those of you uh, who would to study this letter from Foreman because he makes the case in the letter about why and, 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 and about why we have to see this as a struggle. But let me underscore what Ahmad has said and, and say to you as, as my audience, this is why I say history matters. If you go back and you look at Rosewood and Tulsa and Oklahoma City and the sticks in, in, in Palm Beach County, Florida, the land grabs, how black farmers for not just in contemporary history, but in the, the Reconstruction period. If you look at what Nat Turner and what Ida B. Wells and others had to do, if you look at and go back to Michael Brown's mother or Trayvon uh, Martin's mother or are, are any of the victims of recent police brutality and terrorism and murder, you see the same faces in Palestine of mothers who have lost their children, whose children have been detained, whose children have been brutalized. There is no difference. And one of the reasons that we study history, uh, not in a narrow vein, 
but in a broad vein, is because you cannot study black struggle without studying other systems of oppression and imperialism. I just needed to make that point. Absolutely. I I, I want to ask Ahmad. Do you remember when the conversation in this country? I think it began with Reagan and extended into the Bush eras, where they talked about a new world order, the rise of a new world order. What what do you think was meant by that, and what do you think it has to do with the with the coalition between the United States and Israel? That's that's a good question. Well. What have we seen over the last 20 years? We've seen um, a militarization, a continued... I'm sorry, one second. I'm sorry. You know, one of the things, Ruby, is that... I'm, I'm sorry. In any struggle, you have to continue to seek out allies. Um, so, you know, we've seen continued militarization across the board and continued, uh, continued surveillance. Uh, we've seen the creation yes. of the nonprofit industrial complex. So people tell you how to resist these days. You have to do it in a pretty manner, in a respectable manner. And that's why, as Dr. Sales was telling you, when SNCC took that position on Palestine, they hit them where it hurts. They hit them with the funders. I've heard stories from SNCC activists who say they were out in the streets with the rental cars registering people to vote and had people tell them to bring the cars back. And so empire has always redefined itself to make sure it can hold us down. And so now you see surveillance and militarization and tear gas and rubber bullets and tanks on American streets just like in Birmingham and just like in Tunisia and just like in Cairo and just like in the West Bank. And I think that is part of the New World Order that Reagan and some of these neocons and these um, these warmongers were talking about, a, a society that would crush any forms of resistance um, across borders and across boundaries. You know, I would say add on to that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I would just add on to that the globalization of Western terrorism Mm -hmm. and using technology and using technology as an instrument of power and destruction. And I think that we have to begin to ask the question, what is the role of a technocracy in maintaining the new world order? Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. Also, let's look at... And, and, and the question, mod- too, is who, who, rules and makes the, who, who rules and makes the policies and creates the system of the New World Order? Well, I think that the New World Order is a coded word for the old order. And it's really the same Western ideologues who operated Mm -hmm. from Manifest Destiny, who imagined themselves building a city on a hill, who stole native lands and, and gobbled up resources, and they've done that around the world, who think that brown and black bodies are disposable waste, who has created global homelessness by the acts of terrorism and destruction and supporting dictators in countries around the world and destabilizing countries, not only in, in, in the Middle 
these were countries all around the world, whether you're talking about Africa, the continent of Africa, whether you're talking about South America, homelessness must be rooted in the destructive nature of the low-intensity or high-intensity conflict that was associated with U.S. imperialism and, and the assault on the infrastructures that destroyed relationships, institutions, and cultures on people of color around the world. So when mm-hmm. we think about mm-hmm. Palestine, we have to put it within this context of, of, of that kind of trajectory that is a part of the Western, what I call, history of killing hope around the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's something that um, Kwame Toure said when, when he was Stokely Carmichael that always strikes me, uh, something that I like to repeat a lot, that a revolutionary movement, is not going to arise in the United States for racial reasons, but for social reasons, reasons of exploitation and oppression, because that sector of what happens economically, politically, and culturally has been the most long-suffering of the oppressed people in this country. But one of the things that I think, and we've got to step up, and we've only got a few more minutes with um, uh, before we have to bring in Shahar. But one of the things that I think that we've got to do is stop rejecting the same ideological concepts that our oppressors reject as well. You know, um, I remember when I, when I was younger, Ruby, I don't know about you, but I, I kept hearing all this discussion uh, among the adults about what is going to become of the Negro. Um, and there was lots and lots of discussions, and one of the things that we have to do, and that's why history matters, is we have to go back in history and look at the social engineering that happened around housing, around employment, that happened around um economic and business development in our communities. We have to figure out who maintain, create, control the financial systems that generate, that drive our lives. We've got to, and the people who would reject the notion of social engineering, we have to understand they already social engineered all of this into place. Ahmed, as 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 she's at, she's talking about social engineering, and that's a serious consideration in a technocracy, and that's a conversation that we might want to continue to have. But as you get ready to leave us, could you tell me and our audience why should African Americans care about what's happening in Palestine? What's in it for us? I think that's a very good, uh, fair, and important question. Um, what I know about the black community um, in my experience has been that it's a very loving community. Um, and the black community has been one that I think has identified with resistance. 
And so I think for those two reasons it makes sense, but not just for those two reasons. I think also Empire, um, as we said, decides to segregate us for reasons, and it's because we're more profitable to them that way. And so the more they can continue to criminalize and profit off of Palestinian bodies, the easier it is to continue to do that here in America. And that's how they sell the security and counterterrorism industry that they're selling today. They saw it on the streets of Ferguson, and it was trained um, in Israel. And not that, you know, as folks said before, not that they needed Israel's training. This this part of empire has been good enough at destruction to, ma- you know, to mount hundreds of millions of bodies. But I think we know that truly our liberation is bound together, and that's how we're going to win. Well, I think we also saw that militarization in the streets of Birmingham, Alabama, in the streets of Selma, Alabama, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, that African Americans in this country have always lived on the paramilitary force where where white people, citizens were permitted to arm themselves and also a militarized police force. And sometimes the army, who worked hand-in-hand to maintain a white supremacist southern state, As we leave you tonight, what would you say to our black brothers and sisters who are part of churches around the country? What would you say to them about this struggle and what it means? I would say that Jesus was a Palestinian. Jesus was. Say that again. Repeat that again. Lay it out there, Ahmad. Yeah, I would let them know that Jesus was a Palestinian and in all likeliness, he was a dark brown or black brother, and we should love him, and we should love his people, his current descendants who are there in the land today. And we all know that also the Israel of the Bible is not Israel's current manifestation, this political ideology of Zionism. And so I'd say to them, um, you know, in the love of Christ, in the love of humanity, let's build and let's get free. Thank well, you thank so you so much. much for being with us on Our Common Ground. Ahmad, you've got to come back because uh, we have to have this discussion uh, more and more and more because I think that the tools, back in 1967 when this letter by Foreman was written to Stanley Wise, there was loads and loads of discussions about how the Palestinian people could learn from the revolutionary movement of, uh, of, of SNCC and others in, 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 in America. And we need to talk. We need two hours with you. That's what I'm saying. So thank you so very much. You've been listening to uh, Ahmad. Thank you so much. Um, I I really appreciated the conversation. I would love to be back on. And I'm also with some very near and dear loved ones to you all. Reverend Seku said, what's up? Tell tell Reverend Seku, (laughs) he better tell him we know what's up. And he needs to come back to Boston so that we know that we'll keep it. Tell him I said more power to the people. <laughs> I'll see you. I'll see you soon, sis. I'll see you soon. And thank you, Doctor Sale, for loving us. <laughs> thank you, Reverend Sekou. Uh, that was Ahmad Abuznadid, uh, co-founder of the Dream Defenders and serving as the Chief Operating Officer uh, in Legal Matters. Thank him. We we are so appreciative of having had him. We're going to continue this discussion. We hope that you will stay with us. 
Shahar Vardi is a Jerusalem-based activist, and we'll tell you more about her on the other side of this break. This is Our Common Ground. Our number is, oh, what's our number? 347-838-9852. And Dr. Ruby Sales is my co-host this evening, and we're so glad to have her along with you. This is Our Common Ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming Truth to Power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned. Our Common Ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I'm Janice Grant, giving voice to the black truth of America. Our Common Ground, broadcasting free, full, and black. Each Saturday, 10 p.m. blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. And don't forget that you must follow us or follow us on Twitter, Janice OCG, or and make sure that you like us on Facebook. I mean, if we want to get a million-dollar grant, we need to say we got at least ten uh, followers on Facebook because, you know, social media moves everything. Ruby Sales is our co-host tonight, and we thank her for being with us. Dr. Ruby Sales, you're riding tonight. That was a that was a great conversation. It really was. Well, Ruby. I think that I think that it's really in these urgent times as the uh, imperialist forces gain power, and we talk about a wall in this building a wall in this country. We understand the significance of the Palestinian wall. So if we're going to survive in the 21st century, we cannot afford to have isolated struggles. We must connect the struggle in this country, the black struggle in this country, with struggles around the world, as well as Native American struggles in this country. So I think it's a good time to be alive, to set an agenda Mm -hmm. for the 21st century that will have a profound impact on our futures. And I'm just so happy to once again be around to play this role in putting an important patch on African-American and global history. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, Ruby, as I watched the events unfold uh, with the the announcement of the resignation of John uh, Boner, his orangeness, 
I was I was struck. One of the things that I was struck with that all these people who are talking about just how great he was and great he is, and even people who know it's all bullshit. Um, and I was thinking to myself, he was the architect of bringing um, Netanyahu right after some very, very vicious attacks on the Palestinian people, killing children and 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 just continuing to destroy and I was calling it a genocidal process and I stand by that and how black people cannot understand that their tax dollars are funding that kind of travesty in another part of the country. Well, uh, so I think, I, think, I think we have to really think about it, you know, and I don't care if people might label me as, a, as, a, um, as an anti-Semite. I know that I am not. I am talking about, as Ahmad pointed out, the Zionist who uh, continue to perpetrate violence against the Palestinian people. Well, I think it's really important to uh, to make the distinction that we are doing a systemic analysis of Zionism, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we're looking at the, the relationship between Zionism and white nationalism and white supremacy. And one of the things, as we bring on our next guest, I hope we'll be able to talk a little bit about the tools of oppression that this country has used against African-American and people of color in this country to the tools of oppression that they're using in Palestine. The the thing is that that the empire is not very smart. They just recycle the same old tools and use them Mm -hmm. to accommodate them to different situations. But it's the same old tools that they've always used. The problem is... Yeah, are we ready for our next guest? Yeah, I I want to tell our our audience about uh, uh, Shahar Vardi. Uh, She is a Jerusalem-based activist, um, and she has been active with Israeli anti-militarist groups such as New Profile, and she works as the Israel Program Coordinator for the American Friends Service Committee based in Jerusalem. The focus of her work is on countering militarism in Israeli society, including challenging the Israeli military industrial in, in industry complex. She is also part of Boycott from Within, a group of Israelis supporting the Palestinian call for boycott and has been active with direct action groups such as Tayush and Anarchists Against the Wall. Much of her activism is in Jerusalem in Palestinian-led struggles against house demolitions, child arrests, and discrimination of East Jerusalem. 
and her name is Jahar Vardy. Um, and I love one of the quotes that I had picked up from her. She says that the bloody cycle in which I live is a vicious circle that is sustained by the choice of both sides to engage in violence. I refuse to take char- choice. And here's well, some more I from her. I coordinate their Israel program, which focuses mostly on countering militarization in Israeli society. Um, and so what we do is try to find ways in which we can both assist youth that are choosing alternative ways, choosing not to serve in the army, to resist it. Um, so we want to support their work, but we also want to be able to create spaces for other youth to be able to think and reconsider uh, military service and the effects of militarization on their society as a whole. Um, and then now we're also trying to work around the issue of militarization of the economic system, the military industry in Israel, and its effects on politics. Well, yes. The U.S. gives Israel about $3.1 billion a year in military aid. Um, Only 75% of that has to be used back here in the U.S. to buy U.S.-made weapons, which in effect means Congress giving a hell of a lot of money to its own military industry. So the biggest lobby for that is not the Jewish Zionist lobby, APAC, it's rather Lockheed Martin or the military companies here in the U.S. that have events vested interest in the continuance of that. Um, but these two-way ties are, are not only on the, the U.S. aid to Israel, uh, but also in, in general, for instance, the F-35, which is a huge uh, project initiated here in the U.S. of a, a high-tech fighter jet, um, that's cost over a trillion dollars to develop. A lot of Israeli companies have been part of... Wait, wait, cost of how much? Over a trillion dollars. So we're talking about a lot of money. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's still in, in the phases of being developed. There are some prototypes of it, um, but it, it wouldn't sell. They failed in selling it um, because people are moving to drones and different reasons. So what the U.S. did is literally force Israel to buy uh, some of these planes in order to be able to say, look, Israel uses them, and Israel is such a military power, and therefore use it as a marketing tool to get other countries to buy it as well. Israel didn't want to buy this plane, but they were told, you know, if you don't do this, then, then we will not be as uh, helpful with military aid in the future. So there's this whole military economy that has very little to do with security um, and much more to do with economic interests of these military industry companies. Today I believe uh, we couldn't find a single state in the U.S. that their police has not trained in Israel. So this is something that's very common. We do know that the St. Louis police uh, trained in Israel, which is very relevant now with everything that was happening in Ferguson. Um, And so this is something that's very common, not only in the U.S., but worldwide. Israel has become uh, an expert on urban warfare. And unfortunately, more and more police forces think that they need to be trained in urban warfare. There's this uh, kind of shift that policing is becoming more and more militarized as well. Thank you for joining us on Our Common Ground tonight with my co-host, Dr. Ruby Sales. Tonight, our discussion of the global impact of white supremacy. Our guest, Shahar Vardi, a Jerusalem activist that has been working for the justice for the people of Palestine and for the demilitarization of her country, Israel.
stay tuned. Ruby and I will be listening for you. want to uh, thank Shahar Vardy for joining us tonight. Ruby Shahar is on the air. And thank you, Shahar, and welcome to, are you in Atlanta? Our common ground. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Shahar, before we get started talking about the militarization of the economy, I'd I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about your work and where that work has taken you, and why are you in Atlanta this weekend? So my work, as we said before, is around militarization of Israeli society, which has a lot of different aspects. Part of them are more social, around how does, for instance, an education system develop in order to make sure that our population, our youth, join the military um, as part of the compulsory military service that is forced upon young Israelis, both men and women, at the age of 18. So there's a whole educational system that makes sure that people will join the military after high school. So part of that did is you part serve of in the military? Did you serve in the military? No, I didn't serve in the military. I refused my military service. So and you did prison time happened. for it. Right? Yeah, I yeah, I know about I in prison and detention altogether um, for that refusal. How long were you in prison? I was two months in prison and another three months in detention. So I spent a time of about five months, and there are currently, it's important to say, another two Israeli refusers who are now serving time in prison, a few months of each of them. Um, so this is an ongoing thing that happens all the time of young Israelis at the age of 18 refusing to serve in the military. Would you say that's a large population of resistors? No, that's a very small number. I mean, we, we always know their names, and we can usually count them on two hands at the most. Um, it's important to say that there are a lot of Israelis who don't serve in the military, but we just don't hear about it. They don't do it for political reasons, or they don't publicly refuse. Um, but a large percent of Israeli society cho- chooses to get out of the military on the grounds of mental health, which is a little bit like the equivalent of going to Canada back in the Vietnam days here in the States. Um, and so we do have that population of people choosing not to serve in the military for a variety of reasons, some of them because they oppose the occupation, others because they oppose other policies of the Israeli society, including economic gaps and things of the sort uh, that are also a big issue. Well, that's another thing that African Americans share in common with Palestinians because people like Malcolm X, Malcolm X refused to go into the army and he got he did not have to serve because he pretended to be crazy. Pretended, And so because of that, he was not uh, called into the army. So black men throughout the years in this country have used insanity as a tactic not to be inducted in the army because they refused to fight for democracy, so-called democracy abroad, when they were living in apartheid in their own countries. 
And it's a what thing are the fundamental reasons why Israeli um, a, a young people do not go into the army? I would actually say that the most common reason is economic. Um, conscript soldiers today in Israel get a little bit less than an eighth of the minimum wage in the country, which obviously means that you cannot um, live on it. You also can't support a family on it. So you have uh, a lot of the working class that kind of have to choose between serving in the military, which is compulsory, so there is no choice, and between helping their families to finish the month and to actually uh, pay rent. And so a lot of young uh, people get out on mental health grounds, um, as we said before, just in order to be able to continue to work and pay rent for their families. So that's actually the most common reason. And so you know, what is the, work, is the work that you are doing with the American Friends Service Committee, how is it tied into the militarization? Um, how is it tied into militarization? So the work that we do back home is a lot about refusal there, but one of the things that we think is really important to talk about when we talk about militarization is really the military industry complex. And there were a few sound bites about it before, uh, but this is extremely important for the U.S. especially just because of the connection between Israeli military industry complex and the U.S. one. Um, because today Israel is one of the biggest weapons exporters in the world, and this is not just about weapons and arms, it's also about trainings and tactics. And what it means is that everything that is developed to um, oppress Palestinians within the Israeli context is later on exported here to the States um, to see the kind of militarization of police that is seen on the streets of Ferguson or Baltimore or Atlanta. Um, I mean, just last month, Atlanta police was training uh, with Israelis um, around the same kind of tactics that will later on be used to oppress mostly black communities. Um, and so this kind of export of militarization is also what brings me here to Atlanta, but is something that's very important to kind of put a focus on. What are some Shahar, of those one of the things I, I wanted to, talk, to ask you about, if you would, you know, extrapolate on on some of this, why why you think that U.S. Uh, police officers are being trained by by Israeli uh, law um, military. What? Of course, I think that in, in right now in the kind of context of the post-9-11 world where most of the warfare in the world is what's called urban warfare. It's a very nice and clean word, and I was having a conversation the other day uh, where Ruby was saying that we need to stop using these clean words for terrible things. Urban warfare mm-hmm. sounds very nice, and we're actually talking about wars against civilians. Um, uh-huh. So in a world where that's most of the warfare that's happening, Israel is the number one expert in the world in that kind of struggle, that kind of of warfare. Um, That kind of brutality. Exactly. Thank you. Uh (laughs) Um, Because of uh, the the work that's been, I mean, the the oppression of the Palestinians for uh, decades now, which means that the Israeli military all the time is the only military that constantly for decades is fighting against civilian population. So we've become very good at it. So it means things like drone technology. Israel is the biggest developer of drone technology in the world right now um, because we keep using it, because in attacks 
like what happened in Gaza in 2014, um, just over a year ago, with 2,200 Palestinians that were killed, most of that is done with drones. Um, mm-hmm. So because Israel has so much experience, then the U.S. and other countries are very happy to buy that experience, if it's training, if it's weapons, if it's the ideology behind it. I mean, I think it's important to understand that we're also talking about an export of ideology. Because when Israel kind of frames what we as the Western world see as terrorism, right, this whole idea that that Islam is terrorism, all of these things that we are stuck in in our heads, those are also ideas that Israel very much maintains. You can see videos of foreign militaries, like the Brazilian military coming to Israel to train, the targets that are used by the Israeli military are targets that look like Arabs. So these Mm -hmm. officers from Brazil are fighting Arabs. That's kind of the image that is also embedded in them. So it's also a whole ideology of racism that's put into that system as well. I just want to make a point to our audience that if you are an activist, no matter where you are across this country and you're listening to this broadcast, I would think that one of the first things you want to do in the first part of this week is to take a look at the budgets of your police departments and find out if your police department is funding police officers to go to Israel to be trained. (laughs) That I, I just want to explore, um, so when we talk about militarization, we're, all, we're also talking about militarized language that the empire uses that, that make people become not citizens, not human beings, but enemy combatants. And one of the ways in which one of the taxes that they use to dehumanize people we saw this with the Black Panthers. We saw it with SNCC. We saw it with radical groups in this country where they were described as terrorists. And because they were described as terrorists, they were presented as being over and against the security of the white supremacist state and, and the interests of white people and even the interests of some African Americans and other people of color. And we and we see this developing in the Black Lives Matter movement today where this whole narrative is being constructed that they are violent and that they are terrorists. And whenever that happens, the next step is the murder and the genocide of that group. And the public response is a sigh of relief because they've been saved from people who are terrorists who want to kill them and destroy their way of life. Does that adequately describe some of the dynamics that's going on with Israelis? Yes, definitely. And, again, I think that that kind of um, training military or, and now even more than that, training police to for certain tactics, certain things that we think are just um, a certain way to police, it's actually serving exactly that ideology. It's a certain way of policing that doesn't look at citizens as citizens, but looks at them as enemies. Um, and that will be translated into the different contexts of the tier in the U.S. or it's in the favelas of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. You'll have the same idea of kind of seeing 
whoever, whatever population that you need to deal with, seeing them as an enemy and then as terrorists, and then, as you said, it's much easier to fight against them and the rest of and to you know, kill the them and to dehumanize them. Yeah, and then the rest of the privileged society, as you said, sees that as legitimate, um, which is one of the very scary things for me to see an entire power, an entire population. Um, and it doesn't really matter if someone is a combatant or isn't a combatant, how an entire population becomes a legitimate target because of that discourse. Mm-hmm. Yes, and even I, I the wanna... language that was used in this country to to justify project, uh, as someone said, Operation Ghetto Storm, was to dehumanize African Americans people with the war on drugs, even the language, war on drugs, war on crime, that tells us right off that 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 is indeed a war environment and that it is not to stop drugs but to have a war on drugs. And therefore, because the pervasive notion was that in this country that drug users were African Americans and criminals were African Americans, by nature and by inclination, this war was conducted against African-American people with the military conducting SWAT raids, acting as a police force, blurring the line between the military and policing in this country with these wars on African-American people. Could you talk a little bit about the concrete documentation or expression of militarization in Palestine. Yeah, I mean, just a a few examples around how that language is even used in the last few weeks. Um, There's a lot of clashes going on in Jerusalem in the last few weeks between Israeli police that go into different Palestinian neighborhoods um, and start shooting tear gas, rubber bullets, all these kind of different weapons, and Kids throw stones at them, um, and there's these daily clashes. Only the way that it's covered in Israeli media around that issue of language is that it is called stone terror. That is how it's covered. And the moment it's called stone terrorism, it means that the response to that can be the same kind of response. And so now people are talking about sending snipers in to shoot stone throwers because they are terrorists. And we're talking about most of the time, 12, 13. Thank you for joining us on Our Common Ground tonight with my co-host, Dr. Ruby Sales. Tonight, our discussion of the global impact of white supremacy. Our guest, Shahar Vardi, a Jerusalem activist that has been working for the justice for the people of Palestine and for the demilitarization of her country, Israel. Stay tuned. Ruby and I will be listening for you. We want to uh, thank Shahar Vardi 
for joining us tonight. Ruby Shahar is on the air. And thank you, Shahar, and welcome to, are you in Atlanta? Uh, Palestinian kids. Um, that no Israeli would ever think of, you know, sending even police, but definitely not snipers, to go in to deal with, say, Jewish kids that have committed whatever crime, even if they have committed it. But when the moment you put it as a category of, of terrorists, then it makes that kind of thing legitimate. The other interesting, the other very devastating thing for me a parallel that I must make as I'm reading the state-sanctioned murders of African Americans in this militarized climate that we're living in is that in many cases, far too many cases, children, parents were killed right in the presence of their children, even babies who were in their mother's laps when the mothers were killed. And children from very early ages under this militarized police state that we're living in today are traumatized and are criminalized. They're not seen as children. They're seen as threats, as enemies. Can, you, is, can we see any of those parallels in, in Palestine? Unfortunately, we definitely can. I mean, the, just in the last 10 days, Israeli police in Jerusalem alone has arrested over 68 children, Palestinian children, seven of them under the age of 12, so under the age of criminal responsibility. And if we think about the emotional trauma of a nine-year-old boy being arrested, yes. um, it really doesn't matter what, we, what he did or anything of the sort, just a nine-year-old being arrested, obviously that is going to follow them for the rest of their lives. And that is without even getting into all the psychological mechanisms. What does it mean, for instance, to the family structure? What does it mean for a nine-year-old to see his parents not being able to help him? Um, or and, and their parents murdered or taken away. I mean, those are even, exactly. Those are even obviously the more extreme uh, cases Palestinian context, a lot of it has to do also with house demolitions. So, for instance, for a child to see his house just not be there when he gets home, right? He goes out to school, he comes back, and there is no house. So these kind of things that completely change society structure and completely change a way that a child sees life and, and obviously loses childhood within that. Um, and obviously when in cases where their parents are killed and this is something that happens regularly or just seeing your parents, you know, even just, just I'm saying it as if it's a small thing, but just get beat up or things of the sort or even just the daily realities of going through a checkpoint and having an 18-year-old tell your parents next to you where to go, how to walk, and, you know, put your things here and all this very humiliating experience that is a daily experience, even that really changes the perception of children on their parents, on their family, and how, you know, how much power do, do your parents actually have and very much takes away the agency from them. Yeah. Uh, but to both of you, we see that, let, let's take a look at the parallel. Um, you can't sag your pants. You can't stand on the corner. Uh, parents are taken away and arrested in front of their children. I saw a video that was just so heartbreaking uh, just a week ago with a child begging a police, don't arrest my mother. Um, these things are happening here in the U.S. Yes. 
Uh, these things are happening on a daily basis, and we have to see the parallel. And Ruby and Shahar, I just want to ask you one question. Shahar, you are doing the work of helping to mobilize a voice of resistance against this. Um, and I do want to talk to you about the oppression of specifically Ethiopians uh, in from from Bethlehem to East Jerusalem to all over all over the um, uh, all over your country. But we have to out there understand that what Shahar Vardi, our guest, has just. Uh, described is the same conditions under which most of our children live in the inner city. Yes. And I just want to add, all the way back and even before the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, that con- and the bombing that continued, the bombing of black churches that continued in the 1980s, the bombing of the of the AME Church, Mother Emanuel Church, and in, in I mean the assault on Mother Emanuel Church by Dylan Roof. One of the things that we see in a militarized government is the criminalization of sacred spaces and public spaces of African Americans. Do you see that also that phenomenon in Palestine? Yes, there's definitely ongoing criminalization, and some of it has to do with kind of this whole security paradigm that Israel um, is very much stuck in and also, again, exporting it, this kind of idea that these people are a threat on security and therefore need to be criminalized. But some of it are also other mechanisms that we see in different places in the world, mechanisms of making sure that populations live in poverty um, and making sure that there is crime, especially drugs are used in that way, like they're used here in the U.S. Um, to criminalize specific um, specific populations. I will just add to that that if we want to connect it, for instance, to the question of Ethiopians uh, that was raised here, so Ethiopian Jews are a minority within Israeli Jewish society, so theoretically they're part in this system. They're actually part of the oppressing system, um, right, because they're part of uh, I mean, they do serve in the Israeli military, um, and officially, at least, they should have the privilege that other Jews do in this context, but they're put somewhere in the middle, because on the one hand, yes, they're Jewish, and they aren't oppressed as the Palestinians are, but on the other hand, they're marginalized within Israel. They suffer from a lot of internal racism within Israel, um, and so that group is another group criminalized by the Israeli system, specifically. Um, we can talk in numbers today, we're talking about around 3% of the population in Israel, and yet it is about 40% of um, the, the prisoners in juvenile facilities um, are Ethiopians. So we're talking about crazy, crazy rates, even higher than uh, the ratio here in the U.S. around African American and their criminalization. Um, so we're talking about a very oppressed population. On the other hand, it's also a population that serves in the military and serves to oppress Palestinians and are in effect the well, ones standing in checkpoints. Americans serve in the military in this country and oftentimes it have been foot soldiers for the empire. 
but that does not mean, I mean, it creates a sort of opposing tension, but it does not mean that our oppression is any less than the oppression of other people. How would you respond to that? I mean, I don't think we need to measure oppression on what's more or less. I think it's just important to kind of understand those mechanisms that actually many times try to create all of these different this, you know, divide and conquer that Ahmed was also talking about before, how these divisions work, and manage to put people in, in a place where they're both oppressed and used as a tool for oppression at the same time. And how do we kind of deal with some of those dynamics? How we, do we deal, for instance, what we do get from Palestinians in many cases because of the, the way that they the soldiers oppressing them, so you'll get a lot of racism from Palestinians against Ethiopian Jews, talking about specifically the color of their skin and kind of things that, you know, if, if any white person would say, then we would just say that is pure racism. And th- this context, we have to start thinking about in a more complicated way of how do we talk about race when, when it's used, when there's so many layers of oppression here, and when people can really be playing a double role as far as where they are in, in the scale of a pressure, oppressor and oppressed. And to understand well, that it's not there's dichotomy. there's a fundamental difference between internalized white supremacy and systemic uh, white supremacy. I think that we all, no matter who we are in the world, no matter how good our intentions are, that we have to fight every day against the internalization of empire and how we live in the world. I mean, I definitely agree, and that's something that just means that we all need to think about that and, and definitely also see the places where we are part of that system. And, I mean, I definitely know it as uh, about myself as a person who is coming to a struggle from a place of privilege. I mean, in this situation, I, as a white person, as a white Jewish Israeli in this context, have a lot of privilege, and to understand how do we deal with that? What do we do with that? How do we make sure, um, for instance, in, in our context that everything we do is Palestinian-led, that we are trying to amplify those voices rather than to insert our own? And how does that mechanism of also what do we do with privilege works? Well, I want to critique the word privilege because we're not talking, as, an, as a white Israeli Jew, you have more than privilege, you have rights. The state recognizes you as someone who has rights. In the same way in this country when people talk about white privilege, I have a problem with that because the question is not privilege. It's a question that white people enjoy rights that the Constitution says belong to everyone. So I'm not interested in white privilege. I'm interested in my constitutional rights. And I think that when we blur the line between rights and privilege, it becomes problem. It's a privilege to go to a white country club. It's my right to be able to vote. So I think we've got to begin to develop a language for the 21st century that makes clear that our struggle is not a struggle against white privilege, but it's a struggle for our human and, and, and states and constitutional rights in this country and around the globe. Because I think privilege makes it benign. But when you talk about denying people of their rights, their human rights, you're talking about fascism. I think that's a very valid point. And in that context, maybe to translate it on, for instance, what 
do people who do receive rights while others don't, what do you yeah. do with that? How do you operate within that system? Mm-hmm. Well, but, well, you know, one of the things on the you have to be careful about talking about rights, whether they are constitutional rights, human rights, or civil rights, uh, one of the things you have to be very careful about, for instance, uh, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, John Crawford, uh, Tamir Rice, uh, Eric Gardner, and all of the others who are like them were murdered under the cover of law because yes, no one... Yes, but they also violated the equal protection under the law that's guaranteed to everybody in a democracy. Whether or not the state lives into the, the right of people to vote, whether or not the state violates the 13th Amendment, it does not mean that that right is not contained and declared in the organizing documents of this democracy. I would actually like to add another layer to that and say that I don't think that we should restrain, uh, when we talk about rights, that we should only think about legal rights. Because, for instance, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, most are not conflict, in the Israeli occupation of the Palestinians, um, most of what we're talking about is not a violation of legal rights. Everything is done by law, and it's still wrong. And we should be able to talk about rights in the sense of what we believe that all human beings should have, a level of equality. Those are human rights. When you say that those are human rights, we're not talking about just civil rights. Malcolm X made it very clear that the struggle in this country was more than a struggle for civil rights. That's why Vincent Harding calls the movement in the South the Southern Freedom Movement. It was more than a struggle to vote. It was also a struggle to live in the world as a full human being with dignity and respect. So I think that you're absolutely right. Absolutely, which is why I think there are three prongs to to this whole concept of rights, constitutional, civil, and human. But then there, let me let me throw something else. Uh, uh, Shahar, you... Um, um, but let me just say something. I think we've got to get the, the nuance of what I'm saying here. But I, I, it I is get a larger nuance. issue than privilege. Privilege is not the same thing as a, uh, enjoying a privilege is not the same thing as having a human right that is denied to other people that has been declared as a universal human right for the dignity of all people. That's which is which is why to go to which, a white country club. Which is but but I think that ideologically the whole discussion and the language used uh called white privilege is something that has been adopted. You're absolutely right. It is benign, and it has been adopted because people have been not have not been able to unravel. Or I know that people out here, you all, some of you who are listening to this broadcast, you are afraid to whisper the word white supremacy. Supremacy, a white right. supremacist state. Exactly. A Christian, our a fascism. Christian state. Sahar brought up the word fascism, and we've got to start calling our police departments, we've got to call, start calling some of our politicians fascists. We've got to start looking at and dismantling the system by labeling the parts of the system 
that are fascist. You're, you're absolutely right, Ruby, and, and I really thank Shahar for bringing, for this discussion to bringing this, uh, raising this issue because we, we've got to get the language right. There we've got is, to get the language right. One of the things that the I mean, we've got does, to be able to say we've got to be able to say that George Bush is a fascist. That his brother Jeb Bush is also a fascist and a racist. Um, and we've got to be able to label people so that they own their shit. Excuse me. Well, I, mean I would that. rather talk about the system of white supremacy. That, that is undergirded by white patriarchy. I also think it's very important. See, one of the things that I have about language is that part of power is that the person in power, the empire, gets to define how you should talk about them and what names they should be called. And by doing that, they obscure, for example, when I studied history at Princeton, we had to call the enslavers, the master. When you call somebody a master, that sets up a certain kind of superiority. It sets up a certain kind of hierarchy. And it's an acceptance. It's a psychological acceptance the, when you call the embedded someone a master. Notion of the, an embedded notion of class within a, an imperialistic um framework yes you're but absolutely also right. the highest order because uh, god is a master so it within that language then it raises white the white patriarch up to the superior level of almost being god in, uh, in the secular world mm-hmm. and then to mm-hmm. call to call him not only that but a planner what the hell is why would you say planner when slaves were, were the enslaved community did the planting and the hoeing and the chopping of cotton. So yep. it really obscures the brutal nature of the system yep. of, of enslavement. And once you and when you call black people a slave, that implies that we willingly came to that condition. I would say that we were enslaved, which says that we were in that condition against our will. So yep. language is very important. It, it absolutely is, and we've got only got a few more minutes with Sahar. Sahar, what are you going to be doing while you're in the U.S.? What's next for you? Well, mainly I'm only here for really this conference that's now happening in Atlanta, and for me the main objective of it is to kind of know more people and, and develop my own language around it as well. I mean, obviously part of what I want to do is to talk about what's happening in Palestine and kind of what are the effects of Israeli militarization on different communities, including the community here. Um, and I do hope to engage people within that and kind of draw people that are affected by this militarization here in the U.S., mostly yes. black communities, to what's happening in Palestine. But the other side of it for me is also to learn a lot, because we have a lot to learn both from the struggle here, from the reality here, from the people. I mean, even just this conversation, kind of redefining the terms that we use. And I think that this kind of conversation between different struggles is a 
is a conversation that really develops all of us and helps all of us kind of move forward. And it's important to both learn from our history and to learn from the reality that's happening right now around the world to kind of move forward. So for me, that's the main purpose of being here in the U.S. Um, and just after that, going back home and kind of trying to see how I can take what I learned here um, and, and implement it in my work back home but at the same time just to keep the ties with different people here to both see how they can support the struggle back home, but also what we can do to support things here. And I think that these connections that in many, many ways the empire has provided us with a lot of yes. connections through this, you know, these systems of militarization, through this export, it's a lot of opportunities yeah. for cooperation that I think that we really should seize. Well, we thank you for joining leave, us. Oh, okay. Go, go ahead, Ruby. As you leave, I wanted to ask you if you were to give a message to your black brothers and sisters in this country, including black churches and including black young people, what would you say? What would be your great appeal? Well, I think I would invite us all um, to try to look where in our own system, in our own communities, we are actually part of those systems of oppression. If it's through the products that we buy, and there's a lot of talk about boycotting Israeli products or boycotting products that have to do with the Israeli occupation, to kind of notice where within our own daily life we're part of that oppression and to be able to stop doing that and call for others to stop doing that, and at the same time to see also um, how we can work more on this kind of ex exchange between different struggles and kind of see the, the, the similarities of oppression between the different struggles and what we can learn from each other out of that. That's wonderful. Well, we hope we terror, can we globalize, globalize resistance? That would be, I mean, yes, I think that is a, a great goal that we should all be aspiring yeah. to. Thank you for phrasing yeah. it. Thank you. Yeah. We all should put, we, we should make a bumper sticker that says that. Sahar, oh, that thank you wonderful? so Yeah. Sahar, thank you so very much for, for joining us, and we hope that we can hear from you again uh, about the work that you're doing and um, how we can become engaged allies uh, with the work that you're doing. Thank you so very much, and enjoy the conversation. Thank concert. you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Um, Ruby Sales, it, it, you, you always interject into the discussions here at Our Common Ground, such richness, things that uh, bypass us sometimes. And for those of you who are out there uh, and part of the Our Common Ground Sanctuary family. Um, uh, please join me in thanking uh, Ruby Sales for uh, coming with us. Uh, she's going to be with us monthly. Hopefully uh, we, you will be able to find her on TruthWorks Network soon. Um, but let's talk about, Ruby, what we're going to do for part two of this discussion on global white supremacy and its impact uh, coming up for, so that um, Ruby has, uh, Ruby and I have discussed having a panel of U.S. black uh, activists who are involved in human rights work. Uh, of course, Ajumu Baraka, 
Afia Inwan Gaza and others to round out this, this series on rebellion and resistance and talking about how we develop allies and what these parallels are. And Ruby, I'm really looking forward to that. Me too. I can hardly wait. <laughs> so that's that's what we're going to be doing. That's going to be in October. Don't forget that Tommy J. Curry is going to be with us on October 10th, I believe. Next week, we're going to be talking with Dr. Joshua Coleman uh, on the issue of, you know, we always talk about community and family here, but we have a lot of different kinds of crisis, Ruby, uh, in our families. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, we can't talk about building a re, re, uh, a system of resistance, a movement of system of of rebellion and resistance without talking about the family. And I have invited Dr. Coleman to come and talk to us about fractures between... I'm Janice Grant. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you. Speaking truth to power and ourselves.
rivers of my father's, rivers of my father's, carry me home. Please carry me home. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Passes a three-strike law and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. 